for hello everyone um good evening good morning depending where uh, you are joining us from um it's fantastic to welcome you back uh, to the eye both our in-person audience it's so nice actually particularly to have back the in-person audience but also the very many um, colleagues and friends who are joining us online. Um, I'm Sara Pantuliano, the Chief Executive here at ODI, and I'm really, really pleased that we're having this conversation tonight, you know, to discuss how men can step up to end violence against women. Um, we're organizing this event through our Align platform. I'm sure a number of you have heard about, about Align. It's really a platform that we've been um, hosting for some time that is focused on gender norms, and how we can really um, drive transformative change um, to support gender equality. We're organizing the event ahead of International Women's Day for the elimination of violence against women. And this also marks the uh, beginning of the 16 days of activism to end gender-based violence. Imagine every day we need at least 16 days you know, to try and raise awareness on this because actually the stats are not getting any better. And I'll come to that actually. So this is really a crucial dialogue, you know, figuring out what we can do to continue to push, you know, to champion, to advance um, women's rights. We are convening this conversation with four men who are actually at the center um, you know, of action on male solidarity in this space. And we really wanted you know, to center the discussion on the experience that they bring um, and learn you know, from what they've done you know, in the hope that others will be inspired. And we're convening it at a time where actually the levels of violence against women and against um, LGBTQI plus people in public space is actually trending upwards. Just see you know, what we've seen in Colorado, you know, a couple of, what was it, a few days ago, the case of Zara Alina here in the UK, you know, the, the examples are countless. In my home country in Italy. We've just published a new briefing. Um, you can download this online. Um, you can grab some printed copies here if there are. It's called Is No Space Safe? And this is the latest briefing that the Align platform has uh, published, which really highlights how pervasive gender-based violence is across the public sphere. I was just flicking through it before the event started. And then I've got to read out some of these statistics because they are astonishing. Um, so. In the UK, it, it is our research estimates that two-thirds of women have experienced sexual harassment in a public space, two-thirds. And actually, women aged 18 to 34, it is 86% of women that have experienced that. Um, in India, this rises to 92%. Um, there's plenty of other numbers on other places, but I just thought I would also read these other particular interesting statistics that you know, refers to workplaces. Um, so our research says that 36% of men in the UK between the ages of 25 and 34 believe that it is acceptable to pinch a colleague's bottom in jest. It's 2022. So um, a lot of women activist movements have really worked hard to bring out just how pervasive gender-based violence is, to raise awareness, you know, to call out, you know, this violence. Um, but we've also heard from them that it really, it really is now time for men to step up. 
And so at ODIA, we wouldn't normally convene a manual, a male-only panel. It's in our policy. We don't. We, don't. we have not done that for, I don't know, seven years or more. It's been a pledge that we made long ago. But we intentionally are speaking to men only today. And we really want men to speak to other men on this issue. Um, women have already done the hard work to try to you know, raise awareness on this agenda, to you know, push it up. But we're creating the space for others to pick up the reins um, on the back of you know, women's incredible activism. Um, and so to move the conversation along you know, from men expressing just public outrage to actually men taking action, today's discussion we really delve on the experience of people colleagues who have already done a lot in this space. They've led, spoken out, designed policy against male violence. Male violence is happening everywhere. Um, north, south, there is no country that is immune you know, from this violence against women and LGBTQI plus people. Um, we see you know, an incredible backlash against you know, these rights. We see violence that leaves no country untouched. We carry out a lot of global work in these issues, but today we wanted to include you know, the UK as well in the conversation because actually a lot of our attainments are really slipping and you know, our progress on gender equality is going down. We are based in the UK and while we're a global think tank, you know, we're having both a global and a UK-based conversation tonight. And so what we want to really try and do is shift the focus of you know, gender-based violence prevention onto accountability of perpetrators. And in doing that, really try and expand the scope for action for our male allies, you know, for policymakers, for supporters of change. You know, the discussion we'll have tonight will also touch on how we can you know, demystify the different layers of gender norms they are at play, because I think we need some consensus on collective strategies that we can create you know, to generate a more gender equal world. And so, you know, if we don't involve men to work on these issues, people will continue to face violence in their everyday lives. Um, we're seeing femicide cases increasingly hitting the news bulletins every week in my country, every day in my home country, in Italy. And at the same time, we see women in politics being, you know, harassed, you know, abused both online and offline more and more. There is, as I was saying, a real growing, persistent, pernicious patriarchal backlash that is really threatening to re-entrench social norms and to hold progress towards gender justice. So it's really time to act. There is a lot for us to do as a global community to change gender norms around men and masculinity. So tonight we'll start from you know, with hearing from our fantastic colleagues, you know, the first part of the conversation will focus on you know, listening to what they have done in this space, what they've experienced, why they've done it, and what they're hoping that others will do. And then I'll come to the audience, both online and you know, in the room. Um, so for those of you who are online, you know, there is a, um, a slider box um, below the live stream. You can send your questions through that, so I will bring you into the conversation. And please do amplify our conversation on Twitter as well. Um, without further ado, let me introduce this incredible um, panel. Um, I'll start with online. We have Jackson Katz, who is joining us from the US. Jackson is an educator, is an author, is a social theorist. He's actually a major figure in you know, the global movement of men 
that are, who are working to promote gender justice and end violence. Um, amongst other things, Jackson has developed and led the first large-scale prevention initiative in North American sports culture and in US military. Welcome, Jackson. Um, next to me, to my right, I have Ben Hurst, who is the head of facilitation for Beyond Equality. Um, that is a UK charity working with men and boys to rethink masculinity. Welcome, Ben. Um, also joining us online, we have Eusebius McKaiser. Uh, Eusebius is joining us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Eusebius is a political analyst, he's a leading broadcaster, he's a journalist, an author, um, and, you know, is a, a Times Live analyst. He also hosts the podcast In the Ring with Eusebius McKaiser. I'm sure a number of you have listened to that. And then last but not least, to my left, I'm really delighted to have with us Steve Reed. Um, Steve is a UK Labour Member of Parliament um, um, for Croydon North in London, but he's also the Shadow Secretary of State for Justice. Really pleased you could join us tonight. Steve. Thank you very much. Right, well, let's get started. Jackson, can I start with you? Um, you've stated many times before that violence against women is a men's issue. In fact, that was the title of a very famous TEDx talk that you have given. Um, can you explain to our audience why it is important to center men's role in ending uh, gender-based violence? Well, sure. Um, and Sarah, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this great event and, um, and to all your colleagues at ODI and all the colleagues that you've invited. I appreciate being part of this uh, dialogue. Thank you very much. I mean, men's violence against women, as, as you suggested in your early remarks or opening comments, is like a per it's a pervasive problem. And men commit the vast majority of what is called violence against women. I don't, I don't even like the term violence against women because it's a passive uh, phrase. It's a bad thing that happens to women, but nobody's doing it to them. Um, they're just experiencing it, kind of like the weather. But if you insert, you know, the active agent, you have a new phrase, men's violence against women. That's really what's happening. I mean, it's men assaulting women. And by the way, men's violence against women is also connected to men's violence against other men and to men's violence against themselves. I mean, my friend and colleague, Michael Kaufman, the co-founder of the White Ribbon Campaign, in 1987, wrote an article called The Triad of Men's Violence, which connected all the forms, the major forms of violence that I'm talking about. And so people that, that I do, you know, my work and a lot of the other people that I work with around the world in a multiracial, multiethnic sense, in a global sense of the men working on these matters have been making these connections for decades. It's not a recent phenomenon. I just want to say before I, you know, just I think it's important to say this. There have been men doing this work for a long time decades in fact not enough of us it's a tiny fraction of what you know of what we need in terms of being transformative around this you know the let the scope of the problem as you suggest i i appreciate that but one of the things that's that we've struggled with is getting a platform for men to speak out on these matters to get a, you know it, it has to do with funding it has to do with turf issues it has to do with the you know centering women and women's leadership which is all important but I think I think men commit the vast majority of violence. How do, for example, how do we call rape a women's issue? Does it, you know, rape is overwhelmingly committed by men, overwhelmingly, like 99 percent, you know, whether the victims are women or men or others. And, and they're most, you know, statistically speaking, it's mostly women. But men are also the victims of men's rape and people who are non-binary or who are not in the binary are also victims of men's violence or sexual violence. And I mean, the very act, for example, the very act of calling rape a women's issue is a political act. That it's a it's a form of subtle victim blaming because it shifts the focus off of the group 
who is doing it or the group that has more social power onto the group that's experiencing it. And so I think those of us who want to change the sort of paradigm and really want to ramp up our efforts, we need to make visible what has been rendered invisible. And we have to say, this is a men's issue. And, and, and it's also important, and I know that people know this, but I think it's important to say out loud that the category of men is a complicated category with multi-dimensions. So like I use the term, the sociological term masculinities, T-I-E-S, rather than masculinity, to account for the different social positions that men occupy based on global north, global south, racial and ethnic uh, hierarchies, socioeconomic hierarchies, sexual orientation and gender expression and identity hierarchies. So it's important to be complexifying the category of men because we are, we are while many of us have certain things in common, we also have differences based on our, um, you know, where we sit in relation to, uh, uh, to power. And so, and so for all these reasons, I think it's clear that these are men's issues. Can I also say one, one last thing, Sarah, with, related to your opening statement, I think. Um, there's a term that people have used about getting men involved. It's, men, it's engaging men, right? So there's a, there's a Men Engage Alliance, which is organized through the United Nations, and it's multinational, and it's global and all. And all this is good. Engaging men is good. But to me, it's not ambitious enough. The term engaging men suggests like engaging in a conversation. We need to talk to men. We need to get them involved in talking to them. And I think that's a good thing, but it's not enough. I think, I think we need to engage and mobilize men. After all these decades of this kind of activism, we need to ramp it up. We need to get more men who are willing to take a stand and not just interpersonally, you know, within small peer cultures, whether it's adolescent boys or adult men, but men in positions of leadership and power and influence, which is, I'm glad, Mr. Reed is there. I, I think it's really important that we have powerful men, like powerful men. When I work, for example, on university campuses, if somebody says to me, what do you think would be the most effective intervention you could do on this university campus if you want to reduce sexual violence or, or you know, relationship abuse or such? I say, get me the most powerful men on that campus in a room and let's, let's do a training for them because that would be much more, have much more impact than working with the least powerful members of that campus community, which is the students. And, and yet the powerful men, the men who have institutional authority, who, who, who decide what's in the budget, what's the priorities, who, what are the training requirements, what are the, how do you set the norms within this, in the culture, in the institution, those are the men who have the most authority, and yet they're often left out of the conversation when we focus on young guys, young boys, or university students. It's the powerful men that need to be engaging in this conversation, and we need a lot more from, from, from them and from us. Well, thank you so much, Jackson, and I couldn't agree more with you about, you know, the the reframing of, you know, the violence, which is men, you know, I like that, Manning, men assaulting women and, you know, other men, um, for that matter, rather than uh, this this passive against women. Ben, you work a lot with uh, you know men and boys. That's what you know sort of your, your work focuses on. What, in your view, is the link between men and this violence that Jackson is you know describing that they you know perpetrate against mm. you know women in particular, but not only? It's it's a it's a really good question. Hi everyone, by the way, nice to see you all. Um, it's a really good question. And first of all. Super excited to hear from you, Jackson, man. I'm jacked to, to be here listening to you. I think your TED Talk was like the first thing that I ever engaged with on this topic. So it's really interesting to hear you speak in person or not in person, online, but you're here. Um, uh, I think that, you know, Jackson raises a good point, right, about 
the men being the active agent in this. And I think we do have to ask the question, what is it about men that means that we are this way, right? What is it about males, masculinity, masculinities, that means that men are enacting all of this violence towards other people, towards themselves, towards other men, towards women, non-binary trans people. Um, and I think a lot of this comes down to social socialization. My gosh, sorry, let me sit this home. Socialization. Um, which is, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, so I don't need to over-explain it, right? But like the idea of what we teach men or what we teach boys about who they are and who they're supposed to be in the world. Um, so we have these ideas that you get like literally from birth, right? You, you have a baby um, and whether it's a boy or a girl, you dress it in pink or blue. Um, you give them certain toys to play with. You teach them that for boys, they're supposed to be strong. They're supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to be dominant. They're supposed to be in charge. They're supposed to be protectors. They're supposed to be providers. They're meant to look after their sisters. They're meant to look after their friends. All of those kinds of ideas. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, right? I feel like they're all pretty neutral characteristics. Um, but I do think there's a problem when we don't analyze the power that society then hands to those boys when they do become men um, and how easily those characteristics are corrupted. Um, and I think when we see the corruption of those characteristics, what, what the outcome is, is loads of violence um, and primarily violence towards women, trans people and non-binary people. So I think there's a real link there between those characteristics, those set of ideals that we all have of what boys and men are supposed to be um, and how that plays out in the society that we live in. Uh, so we see that often, like we speak at work about um, how those things can be corrupted. And if they were different characteristics, this is my suspicion, right? If we change those characteristics completely um, and we swapped gender identities or gender norms and we said, oh, actually boys are now meant to be kind and they're meant to be gentle and they're meant to be caring and they're meant to be nurturing. Those things can quite easily become manipulation, right? They can become control, they can become coercion. Um, and I think actually what we spend a lot of time doing is looking at the symptoms of the problems rather than get into the root cause of it, which I think is actually that power imbalance. Um, so I think whatever we told boys they were supposed to be, if we told them to be those things and then let them loose without any kind of analysis of who they are in the world and what power they have in the world, actually those would become harmful and, and limiting towards everybody around them. So I think we've got some real work to do to analyze those little kind of bits that are floating around and those expectations that we have of boys. Well, well, this is, you know, a lot of the work that we do is actually, you know, around, you know, gender norms. And these clearly are some of the norms that, in a way, mm. push towards a certain behavior. Uh, you see, because I want to come to you to, to ask you around, actually, what norms you think instead stop men from getting involved and, and taking initiative to, you know, prevent or stop, you know, this violence? I mean, Ben has talked about the violence that may... You know, the norms that may push them in that direction. But what are, what norms are instead stopping men, you know, to help um, prevent or, or, you know, or, or you know, stem further violence? Thank you, Sarah. And thank you so much to everyone for being part of this dialogue. I was also worried that we're going to be preaching to the converted, Ben. But I think although we've got overlapping values and principles, there may be interesting differences in the detail of how we achieve an end goal, which would be the elimination of misogyny and the gender justice society, how we actually get there. I think the answer to your question is partly what Ben had set up. It is about a skewed set of power distributions across the genders, which result in men 
or persons who are socialized in a male labeled manner to then abuse their power and to express themselves in ways that are violent. But where I would disagree is that I think those norms that stop us from getting involved, Sarah, are not neutral at birth and then become corrupted when no one explains to us how to use social, economic, and other forms of power. I think some of those norms are intrinsically violent and violently patriarchal. So for example, we are taught through role modeling, it's often not explicit, from a young age that we have dominion over the bodies of girls in the playground. And when you have dominion over the, the, the body of a girl, then you of course don't see her morally as fully human and as your equal. And if you don't do that, you can draw the dots quite easily between early childhood role modeling of dominion over the bodies of young girls to carrying that attitude and the associated beliefs into the workplace, into the bedroom, and into public spaces where you pinch someone's behind and think that it's unproblematic. So the objectifying of women that occurs quite early on, giving psychic permission to boys to do so without any accountability and repercussion, that sets us up to naturalize and internalize some of that violent patriarchy in adulthood. Now, why does that stop us from getting involved? Because number one, we don't see ourselves as guilty ethically of any wrongdoing. We don't see ourselves as implicated in violence. We see ourselves as fundamentally decent and some men dare even, as have the audacity even, to think of themselves as victims of a new woke culture. And those are sincerely held misplaced beliefs because that is the depth of how much they have internalized natural dominion over the bodies of women. And we'll talk about the solution space a little bit later, but for me, in terms of the diagnosis around this conversation, those norms block us psychopolitically from getting involved in conversations around how do I change my behavior? I can't be in a circle, even in a safety container, where the question is, how do I change myself unless I recognize that I'm implicated in harm? And boys are socialized to believe that they are not implicated in harm, but that they have dominion over the bodies of girls and women. Thanks, Steve. Um, Steve talked about uh, uh, the, the huge set of power distribution. I mean, that must be something you see, you know, in politics all the time. <laughs> well, not just me. I think I think we all I think we all we all see that, don't we? And all, you know, people have, a few people have said we're speaking to the converted here, but we haven't converted enough of our fellow citizens, have we, for to, to deal with a lot of the problems that we're facing? For you know, for instance, today this is this is a symptom of it, and I'll go on to talk to what I think. Um, about the norms and structures in politics. But we had, and my opposite number is uh, Dominic, Dominic Raab. We had um, justice questions today, and we were asking with the International Day for Ending Violence um, Against Women and Girls coming up um, on Friday, why is it that only 1.5% of reported rapes ever results in a trial? And if you're lucky to get enough to get that trial, it now takes three years on average for that trial to begin, which is long enough for many survivors of rape to abandon any hope of getting justice and the case drops you know if there were witnesses people forget uh, forget what they've seen and since 
the government published a, 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 an action plan against rape in 2015. Uh, and since then, the you know the number of prosecutions has fallen by 50 percent. So there's the, these are the symptoms of deep-rooted problems where the government, Parliament, is failing to prioritise this form of extreme sexualized violence, predominantly um, uh, against women. So why is that? Why is that happening? What what are the problems that underlie it? I, I do think a lot of it is about power. Um, I think uh, violence against women is a power dynamic, just like violence against and sexual assault against children is a power dynamic. It is always the powerful of you abusing the powerless. Uh, and it's that rather than any, any other impulse that I think is um, playing out here. And if you look at politics, the form of politics that we have, it's very macho, uh, very aggressive, very binary, very winner takes all. Uh, and those very aggressive macho cultures put a lot of people off from wanting to participate. Um, in politics, many of them women, but not only women. M many groups that feel themselves less powerful are not attracted to those cultures, and yet that is the culture that we um, see in politics. So I think to an extent we need to change the culture of politics to make it more open if we want to deal with the symptom uh, of that problem, which is, uh, as I said before, something as serious as violent sexual assault, rape going unprosecuted and, un um, and unpunished. And you know, I, I think we need to be working towards a politics which is more of a politics for the common good, where we accept that compromise is a good thing. Uh, and that negotiation is a natural part of politics. It's not that I'm right and you're wrong. I have an insight, you have an insight, let's talk, because there will be things I can learn from you and perhaps things you can learn from me. And then we get to a, a different kind of politics, perhaps a politics of reconciliation instead of a politics of division. Whereas what, what we've seen, you know, perhaps since the Brexit debate kind of crystallised this, but the Conservative government sort of landed upon a form of division that benefited them politically. So instead of seeking reconciliation, they tried to widen the division. And that's caused huge problems in our, um, in our society where divisiveness, levels of inequality have deepened and become more difficult because of the politics that has been pursued. But I see a lot of that to do with um, power and where power lies. So what, what do we need to do about that? Um, I'm very interested in how we can open up power, thinking about power as a commodity uh, and a commodity that more people need to take. And I, 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 you know, I've talked with a lot of people and thought a lot about this. And when I was leader of a council in Lambeth, we piloted some of this. Power has to be taken. It can't be given. It's not something that the powerful give to the less powerful. The, the less powerful have to take it uh, in order to want to accept it and use it to... Um, to make change, and that's why I think social movements have a big have a big role to play in this. But I think we need to look at devolution for sure to get power out of Westminster and into the other regions and nations of the country. But that's not enough. We then need localization so that you don't get new centres of power that are perhaps regional but can be just as remote and controlling as as national centres of power. And then beyond that, direct empowerment of people in the workplace, in their communities, over the public services that they use. And the more that you open up power in that way, the more likely it is that you create the spaces for negotiation and reconciliation. And the more likely it is that you're going to you'll find outcomes that, that, that suit people better. So I think if we really want to tackle the impact of these gender norms, power norms in politics, we have to change the structures of politics to open up power. Thanks. You, you talked a lot about learning, and I want to come to what we can learn from you know, the four of you, um, because obviously you, you know, have 
um, you've done more in this space than you know, many other men. And, and in particular, I would, you know, I'm really interested to understand how men can break through the fear and, and step into activism. You know, women have done a hell of a lot of activism on this, but not enough men, as we said at the beginning. So, Jackson, maybe I'll start with you again. What was you, your experience? How, how did you start? How did you overcome, you know, perhaps the reticence that many men have you know, to be activists in this space? And what can others learn from this? Even so many, like three years have we done that now. <laughs> no, I, I apologize. Um, I've been doing this work since I was a university student uh, back in the early 1980s. And, and, and I mean, um, I think one of the things, one of the things that impedes a lot of men who are, you know, good people and who want to be part of the solution, who don't want to be part of a system that contributes to injustice, inequality and violence a lot of men still remain silent. And, and, and I think, I mean, a big part of my work from the beginning has been how do we mobilize those men, men who are already, in other words, who already can see that this is unfair, you know, sexism more generally, misogyny, but also men's violence against women. How do we get the men who are already on board in that sense to speak up, to do something, to use their influence, to use whatever social advantage they have? Um, and, and, I think one of the big impediments to that is a, a lot of men are afraid and they're afraid of other men. I think a lot of men are afraid and it's not just physical fear, although sometimes that's the case. It's also, it's social fear. It's, it's the fear of being unmanned. It's the fear of being seen as soft. It's, it's a fear of being seen as not competitive enough to take it as a man in the traditional way that, you know, in the hegemonic or the dominant culture has defined manhood. And, you know, boys are taught from the earliest ages that, if, you know, if you want to be taken seriously as a quote unquote man, there's a, there's a certain set of rules. The rules are always changing and they're complicated and there's subcultural differences, but there's a set of rules. And I think boys and violence is, by the way, the penalty if you don't um, accede to those rules. In other words, if you don't play the game correctly or uh, successfully, you're going to uh, suffer the potential consequences. And the, one of those potential consequences is violence. And so violence is keeping, you know, men keep women under their sort of control in a sense by violence or the threat of violence, but they also keep other men from challenging or interrupting misogyny and violence, including men's violence against women, through the threat of violence between and among men. So, so ultimately we have to talk about how men are afraid of each other because of violence. And by the way, can I just, I said this earlier, but I'll, I'll repeat it. It's really difficult to get any of these ideas into mainstream discourse, into mainstream media. I've been beating this drum for decades, like in the States, for example, about school shootings. School shootings are nine, over 99% of school shootings are done by boys and young men. And yet almost nobody talks about gender as a central factor in school shootings. They talk about the availability of guns and they talk about mental illness. And I always, I always say, well, if 99% of school shootings were done by girls, would anybody be talking about mental illness and gun availability before talking about the fact that the overwhelming number of perps were girls? And, and I think the answer is obvious. We would be talking about girls and femininity and socialization and you know structures of power relating to gender, but because boys occupy the, 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 the uh, you know, the, you know, the sort of the dominant group, if you will, we don't, we just, we just paper over that and, and we move on to other factors, which are important, but secondary. And then people will say, why do you have to even say it if everybody knows it's true? Like, for example, on the school shootings question or the mass killings, why do you have to say it? Everybody knows it's true. What happens is 
in the subsequent discussion about the causes of this violence, this abuse, these, these tragedies, you don't talk about one of the central factors. So I think part of what, again, what I think we need to do, those of us who want to take this conversation to scale and not just keep it within confined sort of subcultures of intellectuals and academics and feminist activists and domestic and sexual violence people, all of whom are doing incredibly important work and have been doing world changing work for decades now. To take this to the next level, we have to figure out how to get into mainstream conversation, mainstream, um, you know, uh, uh, discourse. One last thing, the the analogy directly that I often use, and I'll I'll, I'll use it right now, is white people and racism. Racism. Why is white? Why is racism a, a problem for people of color, but not for white people? Why should Why should people of color be the ones who are tasked with, you know, sort of deconstructing the the systems of racism? It's not fair. They're the ones who are the being the victims of it, and the white people who, in this case, the white people who are in the positions of influence. It's their responsibility, if they are good people who are committed to things like justice and fairness and democracy, then they're the ones who have to be, um, you know, doing the work, if you will. And it's similar to with men and it's similar with heterosexual or heteronormative people. It's like the people who are being most put upon shouldn't be the ones who are the ones who are expected to be doing all the work, including the leadership, including taking risks, including standing up and speaking out. So, but, but I do think it's important because I think a lot of women... I think a lot of women here, when I say or others say, you know, men have all this pressure on them and men don't, you know, they, they, they're afraid of other men. And, and there's some people, I'm not saying everybody, there's some people who say, oh, we're going to, we're supposed to cry, cry tears for, for men and how much pressure they're under and how, how they can't handle it. And while I understand that impulse, it's not helpful because it's real. There's a real reason why men don't speak up. And there's a real, there are real policing mechanisms mechanisms within male peer culture that keep boys, young men, and adult men silent. And if we don't talk about any of this, and we don't acknowledge that about these these fears, and then we don't have more adult men who are in positions of influence taking the risks, standing up and speaking out, then it's then we're going to have what we have, which is lots of fearful people keeping their head down, not speaking up, and the problems continue and proliferate. Thanks, Jackson. Very powerful. Um, Eusebius, the same question you know, to you. What, what led you to step into activism? What was your experience? Yeah, I want to do two things in this contribution. I firstly want to wholeheartedly agree with Jackson and associated with his remarks around the culture of fear and the way in which he cashed that out as an explanandum for why we don't have more men being engaged in the kinds of way that we need them to. But I want to add to that, Jackson, another element of fear, which is an important, awkward, but important self-examination point that I don't think we talk about either. I think we are also scared as men that we will be called out for being hypocritical, for having personal unfinished business. As a journalist, I work in the newsrooms in the mainstream media that you're talking about, I've also written and been on platforms in the States and in the UK, from CNN to the BBC, columnists for the New York Times, writing dispatches from, from South Africa. And many of the men in positions of power are rapists. Many of the men in position of power, including in the media, are at the very least implicated in culpable silence when they witness 
bums being pinched. And so they can't just write an essay in which they call out other men in society without potentially being called out on their own skeletons. How do we turn that into a productive observation point? We do it as follows. We need to tell men, including ourselves on this panel, that you don't need to be perfectly virtuous without a checkered past before you can get involved in this kind of work. We are all unfinished products. The fact that I'm a black queer man who has been raped doesn't mean that I'm not a misogynist. Many women that have worked with me in radio and TV as a broadcaster will tell you that I've often been very harsh, that I've also demonstrated unhealthy masculinities, adversarial approaches to debate, like our politician has rightly pointed out, which I learned at the Oxford Debate Union. And I reproduce that as a queer black man who has also been a survivor of rape. So the truth of the matter is that we're not only scared because there's no space in mainstream media. We're not only scared because other men might beat us up if we write about them. We're also scared because we are imperfect, unfinished products ourselves, but it is okay. And if we have time, we can talk about how to speak even if you are morally sullied yourself. I got involved in this work because there's an analog between the experiences of women and the way in which I had been raped, taunted as a feminine child in my primary school days. It was only in high school through biological luck when an overdose of testosterone combined with competitive adversarial masculinist debate training that I changed and I had to comport differently in the way in which we all acknowledge is unhealthy, potentially. I had to learn to project my voice differently, to physically and discursively take up more space as a defense mechanism. And that enabled me to survive. And so now I'm writing not just against unhealthy masculinities in society at large, but when Jackson speak, I'm also aware of the fact, Jackson, that we are speaking to ourselves on this panel as well. Thank you so much for sharing that, Eusebius. And, and yes, I acknowledge that there is the danger always that you know, we may be talking to the converted, but that is also, I think, for all of us, and particularly for the men who are you know, with us today, to think how you can talk to others who are not converted. And, and you know, the point of you know, my, the, the next question would be really what we can tell them, really prompt them to act you know, differently so that everyone can take away some ideas, suggestion to simulate really, you know, different um, action. I, I mean, Ben, you have talked a lot in the past about navigating, you know, male defensiveness, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, sometimes men become defensive when you raise, you know, the issue of the violence. Sometimes, 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 sometimes. only sometimes. Yeah. So well, how did you get past that? And, and how do you help others? It's a good question. And do you know what I think? without repeating everything that's already been said, those are really good answers, guys. Um, I do think that we lack a structure for accountability um, that is conducive to change. I, I think we're so used to punitive justice that we can't imagine another way of, of calling people in to, or, or holding people to account for the harm that they've caused to people in their communities. So I do think there's a, a really difficult piece of work for us to do there as men talking to other men. Um, and actually the way I got here was like completely by accident. So I, I, was, um, I trained to be a, a pastor 
I went to a seminary. I did three years of Bible college. I got kicked out in my last year because I'd had sex, which was super awkward. My parents didn't talk to me for a while, but we got past it. We, we grew, we grew. Um, and then I came out of studying and was like, what the heck am I going to do now? Because my plan had gone to trash. Um, and so two of my sisters were teachers. They were like, you should teach. And I didn't want to study anymore. Um, so I got a job as like a, a substitute teacher for a couple of years. And I did that until I started to hate kids. Um, I don't know if there are any former teachers or teachers in the room, but the staff room is a, it's a dark place, man. It's, it's a horrible environment. But um, after that, I uh, went to a sex ed charity because obviously I knew about sex at this point. So I went to a charity that was teaching sex in schools in South London. And I did that for a couple of years. But my job there was to develop a boys project about becoming a good man. Um, and so when I was applying for this job, I was like, yeah, no problem. I can. And then I sat down on the first day and thought, what even are we, what is a good man? What are we talking about? And also, how do you convince boys that they're supposed to be that? Um, so I started researching other organizations, um, watched a couple of TED Talks, um, pretended to read some books. Yeah, Jackson's was one of them. Um, pretended to read some books and then watched some like YouTube videos and found the organization that I work for now. Um, and I contacted them, I sent them an email, and was like, can you share the resources? Um, and they said I could have the resources if I came to the training. So I came to the training literally because I needed to make a project, right? And I was going down this line of like rites of passage. There were people saying, teach boys to chop down trees and they'll get in touch with their primal masculinity or show them how to lay bricks and build houses and that will make them into good men. Um, none of which is entirely wrong, but just not my vibe. Like I, I grew up with three older sisters, so I was playing with like, Barbies and action men at the same time. Um, and so I turned up on the first day. And I think this speaks to the question that you've asked, right? Is like, how do we how do we do this in practice? When I turned up, um, I was expecting to get like a long seven hour lecture on why violence against women and girls is a bad thing. Um, and actually they just asked me a bunch of questions about my own relationship to masculinity. They asked me about my relationship with my parents, about what school was like, um, about my opinions on, on different things, what women should wear, um, why people get raped, why people experience sexual violence, all of those kinds of conversations. We spoke about mental health. We spoke about emotional literacy. Um, and for me, this was my first time being in a room full of men where they were actually talking about real stuff. Um, in my job, I would go to the toilet almost every day and cry um, and think that I was going crazy because there was something going on in my mind that I couldn't articulate to anybody around me um, until I was in this room. And then I was like, has anybody else experienced this? And loads of other people were like, yeah. Um, so I think actually there is a part of this conversation which the other speakers have alluded to already, which is about locating ourselves in this work, right? As, as men, um, I think actually this conversation is not just about being the saviors. It's not just about saving women and girls. This is all about also about saving ourselves. It's about how we can have this conversation um, and how we stand to benefit from it as men. And then also how everybody around us benefits when we're better versions of ourselves. Um, so that was my entry point into this conversation. Um, and I think, yeah, that's one of the one of the big things for me about how we have these conversations with men. Men don't want to be told what to do, right? Like, again, in our social programming, we're meant to be the leaders. We're meant to be dominant. We're meant to know the answers. We're not meant to ask for help. Um, so we don't want to put them in an environment where we're then suddenly saying, use all of these skills that you've never learned in your life. We need to find a different approach to like having that conversation, I believe. 
brilliant. And you see, the value of having this conversation is mm. someone will go and look online and hopefully they'll listen <laughs> yeah, yeah. to this conversation not if he's not converted <laughs> yet. <laughs> but Steve, what made you, you know, engage in this? And how are you trying to encourage some of your colleagues? You know, yeah. to what, made, what made me? I mean, surprisingly, it took me a long time to realize why I was bothered about this. But it was, you know, I'm, I'm gay and growing up gay, I was very fearful of that. Uh, and concealed it for a long time. And when you repress something so fundamental about your own personality and who you are, it becomes very, very, um, very, very damaging. And it, I think the, 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 the negative consequences of that, I still probably live with to some extent. But there was one positive consequence, which was it, it made me think much more about the nature of society and the world that I was in and my role uh, within it that I might have done otherwise if I could just more easily accept the journey that is there for you as a you know a, a, a middle class white man. Uh, I was forced to to question why I felt fearful um, of being different and why uh, you know when I was growing up Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and brought in a law um, section twenty eight which um, which described gay relationships as pretend relationships and you were still allowed to be sacked from your job. Uh, for being gay, and I, you know, I'd always thought wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't because I didn't want to be in a school and then be sacked if it came out that um, that I was gay. So I ended up going into politics in part because I thought politics has inv had invaded my life, like it invades many women's uh, lives as well. And you know, part of my journey was I was outside the Houses of Parliament demonstrating against Section Twenty Eight, but then elected to Parliament in 2012 in a by-election, and one of the very first debates I spoken and voted in was for equal marriage. And then some years later, I have a ring on my finger. So, you know, so no one can tell you politics can't change things. It's slow, uh, it's cumbersome, you know, power being where it is is wrong, but it is a way to change things personally for yourself, but also um, for, for the world as well. So, so for me, that's how I started to think about the effect that the kind of society we, we have had on me, but I could see the, the effect that it had on my female relatives and, and friends as well. People were held back. Opportunities were not open to them in the way that they were um, open open to me as well. Um, and more recently, the role I've got now, I'm Shadow Secretary of State for Justice, I've become very, very interested in the impact of early childhood trauma on an individual's behaviour all the way um, through their life. Now, here we're looking at it in particular in the terms of offenders. Uh, and a very high proportion, over 90% of young people in a magistrate's court um, or people, adults who end up in a prison, would have experienced early childhood trauma. And very often that, will, that trauma will come from either witnessing or being the victim of domestic violence, physical and or sexual. And that damages cognitive and emotional development and in, you know, in, in many cases makes you more likely to become uh, criminalised. That, that's the extreme end of the spectrum. But the same thing affects boys who don't end up um, becoming criminalised as well. My view is we damage boys and boys damage girls and they grow up into men who damage women. And the damage we do to boys is to them as well as to the women that they harm because we force them to close down certain aspects of their personality, perhaps you know the more emotional, more compassionate side of their personality. That's not what men do. Boys don't cry. That's, that's still out there. And it comes through into politics as well. That's just politics. We just tolerate and accept these behaviours. So my way into it was a very, very personal one. But the way that I think we have to change it is through education, primarily. We, we have to teach boys 
that feeling things differently to the norms that are expected of men is okay it's good it's part of who you are we have to accept that uh, and by educating boys better and perhaps then getting on to changing some of the structures about where power is held and who can access uh, power we can change the system more widely but it has to start with educating boys not just because that protects women but actually protects boys too excellent we Coming close to the opening of the Q&A, so I'll do just one very, very quick round, so prepare your questions, and including you know, the online audience, colleagues can start filtering the questions up through. So quick round, then um, I'll start with you this time. Uh, how, what, I, I just, we've, you've already alluded to some of this, but if you had to speak you know, to someone who was still a little bit concerned, another man, you know, a bit concerned about stepping up and really you know, acting in male solidarity, what would you say? What is the best action that you think you know, um, men could take to, uh, towards ending male violence? Um, the best action I think men could take, I, it's a big question, right? And, and I think it's two, two different questions. What's the best action that men can take? And what would I say in a conversation, mm. which are two very different things. I think if I was to be having a conversation, I would try and adopt a stance of being curious. I'd try and, and be interested in what people have experienced. Um, I think we homogenize men, right? I think that we, we treat them like they are all the same. Um, and that's like, in, in some ways, that massively plays out in our benefit as men. Um, but in other ways, that's quite harmful. So I think I would be really interested to ask questions like, when did you first become aware of your gender? When was the first time you realized you were a boy or a man? Um, what, what did you learn from your same-sex parent or carer or guardian about your gender? And all of those kinds of questions, which I think open up a world of conversation around why people see the, way, the world the way that they do. Um, and I think, like I've said, I think sometimes with this conversation, we try and skip to the end point. Um, we try and jump straight to how do we change that behavior? How do we stop men from doing that? Which I think is important. Um, but actually, I think there's a lot of inner work and deep work that needs to happen in order for people to change their perspective. Um, and to understand, I think it was uh, Eusebius said something about um, our, the, the, our psychology and the way that we see um, the issue, the way that we think we don't view ourselves as morally bad or ethically in the wrong. Um, and I think actually we've got to have some space for exploration of that, right? Um, and again, nobody changes their opinion because you tell them that they're wrong. Actually, that makes people double down their opinion. So I think we've got to create some spaces where men are able to have those conversations and do that exploration, um, but able to do it safely and able to do it genuinely um, and able to do it without risk of becoming less of a man for having a conversation or changing their mind or changing their opinion. Um, I'm going to stop there because I know that other people have got yes, really important I've things to I've seen you see nodding quite a bit. So <laughs> would, would you... <laughs> I would do what Ben would do is the short answer. And at the risk of mansplaining another man, I think what I liked about what Ben had said is the importance of creating a safety container my natural instinct as a competitive debater is to give you top-down argument for why you are wrong and to do the moral analyses as a philosophy graduate. But if you want to change behavior, you've got to do what Ben recommended, which is to ask yourself as a facilitator, what is in my toolkit? Where is this group of men at? And it will be different for the reasons that Jackson mentioned, that we, the category of men is actually a complex one. 
And I would read the room, I would build that sort of safety container, and then in a sort of Socratic manner, tease out the conversation, knowing what the end goal is, but you've got to make sure that from a dialogical point of view, that safety container is there. Not because men should be modicoddled, but if your goal is to change behavior, as opposed to simply putting men on trial, which is important in terms of accountability, but it doesn't change behavior, then you have got to make sure that you think in a sophisticated way from a moderation point of view, how you set up those spaces. Well, thanks. We got some you know, really useful, tangible suggestions. Jackson, what would you be your recommended best action? Well, let me say, I, I appreciate all these different comments. It's, re it's really interesting how the different perspectives that we bring, I mean, I appreciate that. The diversity of, of viewpoints and a lot of overlap, but some differences, I really appreciate that. Um, one thing I just, I think it's important that we acknowledge is that women's leadership, again, in a multiracial, multi-ethnic sense for the past half century, but um, much longer than that, but certainly over the past half century, is what has brought us to this place. In other words, the, the domestic and sexual violence movements all over the world and the, and the incredible transformative power that they've had has been unbelievably beneficial, not just to women and girls, but also to men and boys. And and to Steve's point about the tra early trauma, I mean, I mean, so many boys grow up with trauma. So many boys are the victims of domestic and sexual violence as children. And then they, they go on, to, in some cases, to harm other people, but certainly their lives are diminished by this. And so the idea that somehow the women in this work have been like anti-male, they have an agenda against men, is just a libel and it's just not true. And I think it's important when men speak up and have a voice and have a platform. We say, we need to support these women. We need to support them. We need to honor them and we need to thank them. And some of the great conversations that are happening around the world in terms of engaging men and mobilizing men on this subject matter is because of women's leadership. But I think the next step is we need more leadership from men because we really do have to think about this as a macro problem, not just a micro problem. And men who have disproportionate influence institutionally, politically, you know, economically can do so much with that if they take these issues on board. In other words, yes, we can talk about individual boys and individual young men and what to say to them. But I always say this is not about individuals. Obviously, individuals have to be held accountable. Individuals need to be held, you know, with compassion. But it's not really an individual problem. It's a systemic problem. And this very conversation Think about the men who have power in our societies. When I say power, economic, political, institutional, they can help to create these kinds of dialogues. They can lift up women who are doing the work. They can bring men and others, not just men and women, but across the spectrum into these kind of conversations. But a lot of them, a lot of men to this day say, it's not really my issue. I don't, me, myself, I don't commit these acts of abuse and therefore it's not my problem. Although I have to say Eusebius's point, I totally agree with. Self-righteousness on the part of men, like saying, you know, I've got it figured out or we've got it figured out and we need, we, you need to have like a perfect record to be able to have some authority to speak on this subject matter is what gets some men really tied up in, you know, sort of ethical decision-making knots, which result in their silence. So it's, by the way, similar to white people. If, if, a, if you're a white person, are we waiting for you to have perfect and no, no racist attitudes, beliefs or behaviors ever? for you to be authorized to speak out about racism? Because if we're waiting for that, we're not gonna have any white people speaking out about racism. Well, that's very similar to men. Um, so I think, I think the last thing is the leadership piece, when you're, if you're a man in a position of leadership, 
And again, leadership is broadly defined. I'm not saying that you have to be powerful at the head of an institution. You could be an informal leader in a peer culture. You can be a captain of an athletic team. You could be a, a, a you know, a, 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 you know, a boss or, or, a, or somebody in the private sector. You could be in the military in the sport. There's so many different places. You need to know, uh, have a basic working understanding of domestic and sexual violence and sexual harassment issues. You don't need to be an expert, but you need to have a basic working knowledge of it. And you have to also know how the issues of domestic and sexual violence and gender inequality is marbled into virtually every other problem that we have in our societies, whether it's child abuse or alcohol and drug problems or gang violence or in my country, homelessness. Um, these aren't issues that are siloed unto themselves, domestic and sexual violence. They're deeply marbled into every other system of injustice, inequality, and social problem. And if you're a leader, again, you need to know this, and then you need to figure out what you can do within your sphere of influence to support victims and survivors, to challenge and interrupt abuse and hold offenders accountable. And finally, you need to figure out what you can do as a leader to create a climate within the you know, the, within your sphere of influence, wherein abusive behavior is seen as completely unacceptable and, and contravening the values of the group. Again, not because you're a nice guy, if you're a man, helping out the women, because it's really a women's issue, but because you're a leader and we expect that of our leaders. If we got to that place, then you'd have a ton of men, millions, billions of men all over the world who would be walking through the door and having these conversations but if it's all voluntary, it's just, we're hoping men are going to show up for these conversations. We're going to hope that men walk through the door to become activists. We're going to be waiting for decades and centuries. But if we say that these are priorities and that people who are institutional and political and cultural and religious leaders, we expect that of them in the 21st century, then men will walk through the door who would never have walked through the door. And they'll hear things like Ben was saying and others, which is, oh, my God. I'm getting a chance to actually think about my own self, my own life, my own challenges, not just my behaviors towards women, but towards myself, towards self-care, towards my own health, towards other men, because that's what you get when you start engaging deeply in this subject matter. Thanks, Jackson. I really hope that many are listening to you and feeling, you know, that, that sense of driving, that leadership that is so critical. Steve, I want to ask you a slightly different question when we were open to the audience, because it just, you know, as I was preparing for the event today, I was thinking about everything that we've heard over the past few weeks. And obviously there has been a lot in the media in terms of, you know, violence not against the women, but perpetrated um, by men. And, and the response we've seen has all been, you know, about... You know, Ben was talking about punitive justice, you know, putting more people in prison or pushing, you know, to have more people in prison. And we know from all the research that we've done, the carceral action is not the answer. You know, it's about how we work on uh, uh, the structural drivers of violence. It's it's not about criminalizing the perpetrators, mm -hmm. not only. Um, and so it'd be interesting to hear, you know, when you said how important politics are mm -hmm. and what they, you know, they can drive in terms of change. So in your role as a legislator, more importantly, as a Shadow Secretary of Justice, um, what do you think are the legal and policy changes that we need to really act on these drivers of violence? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't think it's just legal. I, I, you know, I, I, I mean, being an MP, I, I, I see myself as a link in a chain that goes right round society. You know, I have a role as a legislator, but quite often we're way behind the curve um, as legislators. You know, my experience about um, you know equal marriage. I think Parliament did that way after most people have decided that that was a perfectly acceptable, legitimate way 
to be. So legislation doesn't always lead, it quite often follows. Uh, but that, that need to catch up uh, is often there. So, you know, I, I do think misogyny as a, as a hate crime ought to be recognised as an exacerbating factor um, when, when sentencing is happened simply to recognize the way that most of the world feels about this um already so i, I don't i don't think we're lead i don't think we're leading on that i I'm, i mean I, I agree hugely with what jackson was saying that was just so uh fantastic and i you know i think um leaders at whatever in whatever way we have that position and role models we have to speak out about uh about things like this which i think was very interesting you've got an all-male panel um, trying to demonstrate male allyship on this agenda because we can never leave um, an issue to the group that is being marginalised or victimised by a particular power dynamic. It's really important that men demonstrate allyship and it's just as the same way that white people need to show allyship uh, on racism or heterosexual people on LGBT issues so essential to, to all of us that we recognise the common humanity behind all of this and our shared interest in our friends, our neighbours, our fellow citizens being able to live their lives to the fullest possible potential, not just because it's good for them, but because it's good for me, it's good for all of us, that everyone should succeed to the maximum because we will all benefit from them achieving uh, the, the, the maximum potential that they, that they possibly can. I, you know, One other point on politics, which is very macro, compared to you know some of the, some of the micro about the individual leadership that we can all show in our lives whatever roles we we happen to find ourselves in but i do think we have to change the structures that hold power so much at the center they're all designed to keep power in the hands of those who already are powerful and to prevent the less powerful from being able to access it and then in the same way i think you can't push water back up a tap you're not going to get open power through a model that was designed to be very, very top down. So, so I think some of the, you know, it's boring. It's not mentioned on doorsteps uh, when I'm out and talking to voters. But actually, the architecture of power and how we unlock power and how we can, can create new institutions and structures and perhaps strengthen existing institutions that allow people to assert voice, particularly people who would perceive themselves to be lacking power, is how they can take that power back. And I think it's only by doing that that we can get to a new culture in politics that is much more about reconciliation, compromise and negotiation for the common good of all. Couldn't agree more. Thank you very much for that. Audience, it's your time to engage in the discussion. Um, Raise your hands. I'll, I'll come to the, the in, you made an effort to come here. So I'll come to the in-person audience first. Uh, raise your hands, say who you are. There is a roving mic somewhere. They'll come to you. Also introduce yourself, say if you have any affiliation and if your question is you know, directed to anyone in particular. Um, and I'll take three or four and then we'll come back to the panel. Hopefully we can get in a couple of rounds. Who wants to start? Somewhere at the back there. Hi. Thanks, uh, Rebecca. I newly at ODI, but I used to work for a conflict resolution organisation. Um, when you talk about men taking kind of control of this issue, for want of a better phrase, um, I think it was interesting earlier that it was mentioned that men are often socialised to believe they have power over women's bodies. How do you navigate the dangers of this being another form of power? The fact that you choose not to abuse me is the same exertion of power over my body than if you choose to abuse me, arguably. Um, 
and I think I've seen in in work we've done in um, Southeast Asia and the Pacific particularly um, a danger of relying on positive masculine stereotypes that reinforce a different type of patriarchy, a responsibility for women's lives that doesn't really redress the balance. So yes, my question is, how do you navigate those conversations to make sure that you're not just reproducing a different set of cultural norms? Thanks, Rebecca. All the easy questions from Woody I stuff. Thank you, everyone, for your, you know, um, insightful talk and, you know, comments. Uh, my name is Gurpreet. I work in the gender sector, particularly, uh, you know, um, on incels and counterterrorism, um, newly in, in, in that sector. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, my question is slightly linked to the first question. It's on consent and rejection. If we are talking about, uh, you know, violence against women, you know, um, a lot of it is based on uh, the fact that women are afraid to utter no. Because when they utter no, that is a rejection and the consent there, it, you know, it, it doesn't take place. How do you tackle that in your work with other men? When you, do you talk about rejection and consent, particularly, you know, legal consent, where what is, uh, you know, what, what classifies as rape or sexual assault or domestic abuse? Yeah. Thanks, Wilfred. Anyone? Yes, colleague. Thank you. Uh, Nate Eisenstadt, University of Bristol, Gender-Based Violence Prevention and Response. Um, talked about a bit about how the backlash um, against women's rights, against gender justice is one of the key things um, that we're facing at the moment. And Ben and Yusubius have talked about how in person we can meet that by not going with kind of didactic approaches, with kind of thinking about what's going on for the person. Um, I guess one of the main ways that we see that backlash played out is online. And I'm just wondering, and this is something that I grapple with myself, of to what degree do we engage with that and how? Let me just say that Align did a really excellent study before the summer on that, that I'm sure colleagues will be happy to point you to on that as well. Um, Hi, um, wonderful talks. Thank you all. Real privilege to be here and hear such kind of diverse and rich um, set of perspectives. My name is Dan Artis. I am a PhD student at University College London, and I've been doing some work with the wonderful Nikki van der Gaag um, on a edited collection about um, patriarchy in practice. So a kind of collection of ethnographic case studies on how patriarchy works and doesn't work in different spaces and how we can think about decoupling masculinity, patriarchy and men and what it means to do so to try and think, well, how can we be men if masculinity is not going to go away? But, you know, how do we sort of move beyond the sort of dynamic between what's toxic, what's acceptable and sort of put it into kind of more practical terms? And I think just I wanted to pick up on something that really resonated with this whole the initial engagement with feminism with men is really painful, right? So I was raised very Christian once upon a time, and I was saved by basically queer Marxist feminist performers. So there's, there's, there's a story in there, right? But one of the things I wonder about putting off men is just the feminism representing like a real existential threat at a really deep level. And how do you communicate that and say, you kind of need to go through the pain right? Because we can talk about this kind of tactical usage of power when it's consolidated in kind of patriarchal contexts, but the strategic aim is to have it distributed more evenly, right? So there is a clarity 
in saying that men will lose and it will bloody hurt, right? And it kind of has to, because at the end of the day, it's this balance between being on trial, I think Eusebius put it, right? So we have a safe space, we don't coddle men, but actually that pain is instructive. And I was raised Calvinist, right? So dark theology, yeah? Really heavy duty, nasty, nothing you can do matters, yeah? And like second wave feminism was a gentler instructor than, than Jesus, right? Kind of heavy Andrea Dawkins stuff, yeah? And um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna shut up on the point. I think the, the thing I wanna ask kind of across those things is, is there a risk in bringing men back into this conversation that the way we're socialized takes up the space that liberation movements have fought so bloody hard to make where men's voices don't just redominate, right? I'm holding the microphone at an all-male panel about how men can stop hurting women, right? Like something for that rings alarm bells in me because I'm big, I talk posh, I have nice hair, right? People listen when I talk, probably more than I should, right? And at the end of the day, the question is, how do we thread that needle between accountability and agency, right? And I spent 10 years saying, am I a feminist or an ally? When it's finally taken me that bloody long to go, oh, I have to be both, but it depends on the context, right? It's about knowing when to talk and when to listen. So yeah, we need leaders to act in terms of accountability and set an example. But at the same time, I think there is a real risk when men are in those spaces, they can replicate the very problems they're trying to avoid. And the question I'd ask is, how do we do that, right? We have men that are in the corridors of power and so on. I'm going to shut up now. I'm terribly sorry. Doing my thing. She wasn't answering. Um, I... I, I'm tempted to just get all the questions and come back to you because I'm f I fear that if I give you the floor back, we're not going to get no, another round. Get so now. yes, let, <laughs> let me get a couple more and then I'll come back to the panel. Thanks very much. Thank you all, to all the panelists for this really engaging um, discussion. Ipek Genshe, I'm a senior research fellow here at ODI. My question, we're ODI, we work on uh, these kind of issues globally, and you are from uh, the UK, um, the US, South Africa. Um, we have colleagues here from different parts of the world where patriarchy and these kind of issues are even more prominent. So any thoughts on how to even begin having some of these conversations in those countries like Turkey, where I'm from, um, in countries in, in Asia, in, in, in other places where uh, we haven't even opened up the space for these kind of conversations. So any learnings, anything that you would think that we should be doing differently as policymakers? Thanks, Ipek. And I have a question from the online audience. Um, Amy asks, where are the movement, the male movements to end? Um, male violence. Um, so, can you speak to? You know, is there any? <laughs> and if it's also, what are they? Yeah, um, last two here, and then I really need to come back to the panel. Thanks very much. It, it's been a, a really fascinating discussion. So, thank you very much to all the panelists. Um, my name is Juliet Coleman. Um, I run a charity called Security Women which is all about um, the inclusion of, of women in very male-dominated security institutions. So we're talking about policing, armed forces, peacekeeping, private security. Um, so I was just thinking that um, when you're talking about uh, changing how society actually operates, um, when we think about the world now, we've got war, we've got, um, we've got a situation where the media talks about winning and losing, but I want to bring it back down to, um, you know, where is the real power? And, you know, you're talking about these really powerful, very male-dominated institutions, 97% male-dominated across the world. We've got to change those. 
and and get women in there to actually level up the power base, if you like, um, but also to change the culture. I very much believe that we change the culture of those institutions and bring in human rights um, and treat everybody with respect. Thanks, Julia. Um, finally, the colleague at the back. Um, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Eleanor. I'm actually an intern here at ODI. Um, but I was just curious um, on an interpersonal level, when confronted with these conversations with, let's say, like my male friends, I find a lot of them are very apathetic towards this issue entirely, which I think has been briefly touched upon by the other questions that have been presented. Um, so I guess my question is, how would I or my friends who are interested in this issue bring it up to people who are just generally apathetic? Uh, entirely. Great. Um, and we sort of touched a little bit on that. Uh, who wants to start? Jackson, Eusebius? Um, <laughs> well, if, you know, if you start, you can choose. Towards the end, you left to answer the ones that haven't been answered. Okay, I'll start then. Um, firstly, the questions are brilliant, irreducibly complex, voluminous, we can't do justice to them. And it would also feed into the idea that a bunch of men have all the answers. So that's my excuse for giving you half answers. I'm gonna randomly pick two, although all of them are interesting and important. The consent question is an interesting question, both from a legal reform point of view and also from a socialization point of view. I don't have answers, but I wanna plant these thoughts into the blogosphere and into the, the physical space over there in the UK. I think we've got to seriously think in each of our jurisdictions about redefining consent to make it explicit that you need an enthusiastic yes before someone at an absolute minimum can be regarded to have been granted consent when it comes to, for example, penetrative sex to take one aspect of a potential violation. The idea that there is implied consent should be explicitly legally unacceptable and the gray areas should be eliminated by rethinking aspects of criminal law. Obviously, from a comparative law point of view, there's complexity there because there are questions that will be country specific. So I will leave the principal point there, but I want to add this rider. In addition to legal reform around the consent question, Institutions often have the opportunity in terms of administrative law in many jurisdictions to not follow strict criminal law standards. And I think they need to, in terms of the leadership Jackson speaks about, they need to experiment and try and push their constitutional space to do so. For example, if I am in charge of disciplinary processes in the workplace, or the university in London or Oxford or Cambridge, I might be able to have a different evidentially standard that I introduce as a institution specific one for purposes of workplace labor relations and contractual obligations that is slightly different to the beyond reasonable doubt standards of criminal law. And I think there there's opportunity for creatively making sure that we set new norms that are expected of staff members, even if it is different to the criminal law standards of the country, and it may not always be unconstitutional to do so. Then the other question I wanted to, to tackle very briefly is the conundrum around 
someone asked, you know, is there the danger of inadvertently reproducing male domination in the making of an anti-misogynist society? I want to say to that something very simple, and I'll leave it here. Don't overthink it. I am delighted at the prospect of Jackson and Steve convening an all-white panel to think about how to be allies in the elimination of anti-black racism. I will not think that I am not being given a chance as a black interlocutor to be in an important space where I can regale you with stories about being guilty of being black while walking Oxford Street in London or Soho in New York. It is important to recognize that that work is labor that I don't have to do as a black survivor of racism. And therefore, the overall utilitarian benefit of the all white ally space is one that as a black person I can live with. I also wanna just go to the cinema or go and read poetry about daffodils while white people exclusively do the hard work of thinking through how to not be white supremacist. And by analogy, I think we should be comfortable with men working on men because we are the perpetrators. And so we had better spend more time with ourselves thinking through how to be meta human beings in the world. Very much. Jackson, am I getting the sense you want to come in? I can't see sure. you very well. I was just affirming uh, non-verbally uh, UCBS's comments, but I, but I can I can jump in. Why you know uh, why not? Um, again, great a whole bunch of great questions. One one thing one way to think about um, some of the different strands of what we've been talking about is the you know the the for lack of a better word the benefits to men of doing this work and men's health right the men's health movement which is uh, thinking about the ways in which cultural ideologies about quote unquote manhood have harmed men's you know, self-care, they're going to the doctor, they're taking care of their emotional, physical, sexual, relational health, because that's somehow unmanly. The men's health movement that connects cultural beliefs about gender, specifically, you know, manhood, to bad outcomes for men's health is a direct outgrowth of the feminist-led women's health movement, which started in the early 1970s, looking at ways in which women's health was directly impacted by their subordinate gender and sexual class status. And yet, the backlash movement, the anti-feminist backlash movement globally, often will say things like, well, you don't care about, you don't care about, feminists don't care about men. They don't care about men's health. Look, men die earlier. Men have all these workplace deaths. You know, men have all these problems that you don't care about. It's not true. In fact, some of the best and most thoughtful work in advancing men's health has come from feminist women's leadership. And, and some of the, by the way, some of the main intellectuals and activists, therapists, doctors, and others in the men's health movement explicitly credit feminist women's leadership for giving them the intellectual and political momentum and ideas to, to do their work. So it's not one or the other. Like I, I do think that that power, when you, when, and then Steve's comments about power, it's interesting and important to think about power and how do you decentralize power and all that. And I appreciate this multi-dimensions to these issues, but I do think that we could, we have to comp be complex in a way that we think about this and men will benefit. If men have wholer lives, if they are less constrained by traditional ideologies of manhood, they will benefit and all the people around them will also benefit. I also wanna say people didn't mention this, I don't think, but porn culture is incredibly pervasive in the globe, global sort of space all over the place, porn culture. And porn culture, talk about the enemy of teaching consent 
porn culture teaches the opposite of consent. And so, so many boys and young men are so sexually socialized through their consumption of porn, where it's not completely normalized that men's agency is the only thing that matters. Men's consent is only a, an afterthought, if at best, and women's sexual pleasure is not even an afterthought, if we're talking about heterosexual porn. So the point being that we have to talk about the porn culture and the media culture that helping to shape the norms that some of these boys and young men are being taught and are being, you know, absorbing. And finally, I, I, again, I don't think somebody explicitly asked this question, but I hope it gets to some of the pieces of the of the questions that people and the comments that people made. This rise of authoritarianism in in Europe, in other places, but also certainly Trump Trumpism in the United States, it's not just about racial animus and antagonism towards dark skinned immigrants and others. It is that, I'm not saying it isn't, but it's also men who are feeling decentered by feminism and by heteronormative people, in this case, especially men, being decentered by the LGBTQ revolution over the past you know, number of decades. And yet in the discourse, the conversation about the rise of radical right-wing parties and movements in Europe and the States, there's very little discussion about the anti-feminist uh, aspects of that. It's, it's, it's race is centered at, to the exclusion of gender. And I think it's important to talk about why, why does Jordan Peterson so popular? Why does Andrew Tate so popular? In part because they're tapping into millions and millions of young men who are feeling decentered by these changes that are happening, by women's advancement, for example. And if we don't give those boys and those young men and those men a positive way that they can be part of the changes that are happening in their societies, and, and bring them in, call them in rather than call them out for bad behavior. If we can't figure out a way to integrate them into the positive developments that are happening, then they're gonna, the right is open arms for those people, for those young men. And they're saying, the right is saying to those people, come to us, come with us. We'll fight to keep you on center stage, keep make America great again, which is all about put white men back on center stage again. And I think as an as an anti-fascist activist, I feel like that's what I am. I mean, I'm working against fascism my whole adult life. I think we have to talk about this as a real danger and that the gender subtext of these political movements has to be brought to the fore. Thanks, Jackson. Just to reassure you, this is something that the team here at ODI has done a lot of work on and also demonstrated through our research how well-funded this patriarchal backlash is, you know, how there is a really concerted, well-organized, well supported financially, you know, coalition of actors that is really pushing for this regression of, you know, the, the gains that women have made. So it's something we very, very focus on here. So Ben and Steve, there's a few questions left wow. there from, um, you know, the, the online backlash to, yeah. you know, how we level up or, you know, advice to EPIC and others in, the, sort of in Turkey and other places where these things may be even sort of deeper, um, mm -hmm. how to, you know, break the apathy that some, you know, feel around that and anything else you may want to address. Do you want to go? I can go. Yeah. Okay. Um, what I would jump in on is number one, what's going on around the world. So there are loads of movements that are, um, male movements there's a men engage network if you don't know about men engage have a look they're doing loads of stuff in terms of uh tackling gender-based violence globally um i think uh one of the things that one of the processes that i've gone through whilst doing this work so i've been doing this for maybe seven seven or eight years now um and i think 
there was a real moment, maybe my second year of doing this work, where I realized that it wasn't just us. Um, and, and actually, there are global networks of people doing things there in places where you would not believe. And I think also that idea of not believing that certain types of people would be doing this work is maybe part of our like colonial mindset or like something something that we need to interrogate within ourselves um but i do think if you look you'll find people no matter where you look there are people mobilizing on the ground um in communities they might not use the same language that we use they might not call it feminism they might not call it activism but they're doing stuff to try and end those problems in their communities so i think um actually men engaged do a really important piece of work which is connecting the dots between all of those organizations so we're not all reinventing the wheel over and over again, um, which I think leads me to another point that I wanted to touch on, which was about whether we are replicating the same structures um, as men or as people who are doing this work. And I think actually the answer is that we're guilty of that. Um, and that we can't, I think one of the hardest pieces of work to do is to reimagine anything. Um, and so it's really difficult. It is really, really difficult to imagine a version of this that doesn't just look like patriarchy. Um, and so even in our, in our, aims and our objectives to get women in leadership, um, we're replicating the same thing, right? And often when women reach those points, they just have to behave like men anyway, or like what men behave like in those areas. Um, so I do think we've got a lot of work to do, but I think I take solace personally in the fact that this is a movement, right? And, and it's not just about individual people doing individual pieces of work. I think it's really important, like you're probably asking the wrong person because I feel like I'm in the trenches, right? Like I feel like I'm on the ground having the conversations with the, with the men that don't want to listen, with the boys that are throwing pieces of paper around the classroom um but i do think that actually there is a real importance in uh interrogating and robustly like challenging your view on what your work is um working with academics working with scholars working with people who are in the field um working with other agencies with women-led agencies with agencies that work with survivors of violence to make sure that your approach is always informed by those people in whatever work you're doing i think that that's really important this is super meta, man. There was so many big questions. Um, I think I just want to speak to the, to the question that you asked. I feel like you're asking it to me. Um, I, and I think actually you're right, right? There, it's painful. Um, I think one of the big things is that there's no shortcut. And I think we live in a culture at the moment that wants to instantly change everything. So we want to move people from the point where they've never thought about this before to the point where they are 10 year in activists. Um, in two days and they're not going to do that right i think actually there is a real process of grief that takes place when you come to terms with your own positionality and giving up power um and we look at people and we point at them and say that they're bad for feeling that but you can't control your feelings right so i think we've got to hold space for people to go through that process hold space for people to grieve for people to feel the pain for them to heal and then to start their journey of allyship and activism and that actually takes a lot more time than people give credit for um which speaks to that point about apathy that you are making also um which i think is like do what you're doing do you know what i mean carry on doing what you're doing um you'd I wish we had data on this. I'm like, send me data now to my boss. But I wish we had data. We don't. But I would say, if I had to guess, I would say probably 97% of men come to our training sessions. Um, so community allyship training, volunteer training, um, whatever kind of training is where they self-select to come, are there because of women in their life who have badgered on about this stuff for years and years and years. Um, and I know it's not glamorous. I know it's not like the 
this is the silver bullet. You say this and they suddenly change their minds. But I do think that that's really important. I do think that actually um, in my own life and in the lives of almost all the men that I know, this has been a different way of being has been modeled to them by women, non-binary people, trans people who have modeled that, who have shown them that there are possibilities beyond where they sit now. Um, so I'd say that that's really, really important. And uh, the point was made already about enthusiastic consent, but I do think in teaching boys in particular about consent. Um, again, we've got to make this a conversation that is about them. Um, that I, I think one of the things that boys forget is that they have consent, right? They can give consent or they can withdraw it. I think a big thing about masculinity, particularly in regards to sex, is that men are always meant to want sex. And um, they're never meant to say no to it. And if they do, there's something wrong with them. And that also is a, a view that women hold, right? That's, that's not just about men. That's a cultural norm. Um, and I think actually we've had some big conversations here today about changing culture without labeling it as changing culture. But I do think there are other pieces. And, and I think that's where like, apart from people who are working in politics, people who are on the ground, people who are doing the research, um, actually media has got a big role to play in this as well. Um, and, and those other, like, I think art has a massive role to play in this conversation about changing culture and changing norms um, for people, the messaging that we're all receiving. Sorry, super jumbled thoughts, but I think I'll pause. He needs to go back to vote okay. in Parliament. So oh, I'm no, it's not that important, man. Chill out. Oh, no, I feel I'm going to bring the tone down now. But, um, I mean, first of all, thank you for inviting me to part of the conversation. It's incredibly stimulating and important that we create spaces to have conversations like this. So, somebody mentioned human rights. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think this is a small point um, in all of this because we have a government here, you know, the Human Rights Act in our country, in our country is a constitutional piece of legislation which means it underpins other parts of legislation. Um, and the government wants to rip it up. They want to bring in something called a Bill of Rights, which is actually a Rights Reduction Act. And the reason they want to do, and, it, and it's, it's one of the bulwarks that, 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 that establishes gender-based rights um, in law, and very important that we defend it. But the government wants to rip it up because they took exception when they tried to illegally prorogue, close down Parliament to avoid scrutiny, democratic scrutiny, um, that the... the the Supreme Court made declared that illegal and made them open themselves up again. So they want to rip it up. That is a threat to all of us. And um, there's only one country that has withdrawn from the European Convention on Human Rights since it was introduced. That's Vladimir Putin's Russia. And that was so that they could pass laws to um, target LGBT uh, people for severe discrimination. And the idea that the British government would want to follow the Russian model of all things on human rights is absolutely shocking. So we've got we've got a battle coming up in Parliament, but it cannot just be in Parliament. As I said before, you know we're part of a chain. There needs to be uh, real activism um, around this if we're going to de defend what was a significant gain uh, for LGBT people, for women, for people of colour uh, across our uh, across our country. So that, that's one point I wanted to make. Second one kind of fits for what you were saying, uh, Dan, which is how do we engage men? Um, in this debate, men who are not already um, in, in the debate, whose hearts and minds haven't been won. And that's, that's a general dilemma in politics, because you have to win over people who initially may have a different view. And if your starting point is to point at them, you're wrong, you're the problem, you have to realise that, then we can fix you, they will walk away from you. And I think one of, one of the reasons that we see around the world um, the rise of populist nationalism, whether it's Trumpism, whether it's uh, what Johnson was doing in our country, whether it's what we see in Poland and, uh, and Hungary, is a lot of people feel 
that they no longer have a place in the society that they're part of. Now, there may be genuine, there are genuine problems we wish to tackle, but you can't tackle them by alienating that entire community um, who, who you have to engage in a democratic society if you're going to win their consent for change. So it's really about what is the way in that we can um, not make them so fearful that they, they would go in the other direction. Now, there are ways into this. Uh, probably a lot of it isn't the kind of conversation we've been um, having here, but high on the agenda at the moment is violence against women uh, girls. People recognise that. Sarah uh, Everard, all of the other cases that we've seen recently, so horrific, but have really shaken people. And you know, men all have relationships of one kind or another with with women as uh, as relatives, as partners, whatever it might be, and they they perceive the fear that that, that women have in our society. So there's kind of a way in, and I, and I think we have to talk to men as potential allies and friends in this, not as a problem, not as a potential rapist, not as a perpetrator. Uh, of, of violence, but as allies in this, and that, that point about shared common humanity, you can only win people in if you can show them that they can be part of the solution, not that they're part of the problem. And I, and I think in politics general, there's a point about reciprocity. Um, men will be prepared to give up their power that they have if they perceive a benefit. People give to get, and there is a benefit to men to not be part of society that is built on toxic masculinity that is as damaging to men as it is damaging to women and i think that's a really important point and we can make it in different language than that uh and we would have to but i think we win men by showing them that they are our allies in a bigger fight that through self uh, enlightened self-interest benefits them as much as it benefits women and therefore um all of us final, final little point this kind of on reciprocity again it's a, you know there were a few points raised about how we engage with perhaps men in other um, in other countries. And I think it has to be done, and the ODI will know this, in a respectful way. We do not have all the answers. Just get out there and have a look around. You can see that. You know that as, as well as I do. There are things we can learn from those societies in the same way that we would hope that they can um, learn from us. But we have to be humble enough to recognize that we've got things wrong. Uh, and in many cases, you know, for instance, I, I had the huge privilege to go to Kenya um, with VSO, actually as part of my current job, but I got advised out there one summer, really, really um, interesting. But one of the things I learned there was that they are much more respectful of human relationships in their lives and in the way that they would design their politics and public services than we are, and we are diminished by failing to recognise that. So I think humility and reciprocity when we're engaging with other countries is fundamentally important too. Thank you so much, Steve, um, Ben, Eusebius, Jackson. What an incredible evening we've had. Uh, we've gone slightly over time, but I think it was a testament to the passion and the commitment that you know, the four of you have uh, for this agenda. And I think of everyone who's in this room and in our online room, I think we're all equally committed to try and, and help reshape the norms that influence this toxic mas masculinity we've talked about um, tonight. It's clearly a job for everyone to do, um, men, first of all, women too, um, to really try and make sure that you know, we create a stronger movement um, that really challenges other men you know, to become 
um, allies and uh, and stop this, you know, kind of uh, epidemic of uh, of violence that we've seen grow um, of late. Um, for those of you who are in the room, there are nibbles and drinks next door, but you can um, carry on the conversation. Apologies, Jackson and Eusebius. Um, <laughs> for everyone else, uh, just a reminder: there are plenty of resources on this um, online. I, I want to flag again the brief that the aligned um, colleagues have just done on. Uh, is no space safe, which really demonstrates how topical this conversation um, is. Um, it's for all of us to continue the conversation. The recording of this particular conversation will be online in 48 hours if you want to signpost it to others, but it is the beginning of the 16 days of activism. Let's make sure we make them count. Um, in the meantime, please join me in thanking Steve, Ben, Eusebius, and Justin. Thank you.